This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Kia ora and welcome. This is Garden of Sound brought to you with thanks to Mint Finance, business loans made easy. Today on the show, Ari Freeman from Rhomboid. But first, thank you so much for coming to Garden of Sound at D4 last night. I'll go into more detail about the event in the coming weeks and where to from here. But most importantly, thank you for your continuous support of this program and the musical development that Garden of Sound is helping to make happen in Christchurch. Now, another way to support Garden of Sound is to get your hands on a limited edition Garden of Sound t-shirt available now through our sister brand, The Nephilist. They're black with a white logo. They're beautifully crafted by the team at Against the Grain Screen Printing on an AS color tee. They're gonna stay looking great for a long time. You can get yours now for the very special price of $25 just by heading to gardenofsound.nz, clicking the link, which will take you to our sister site, The Nephilist, to buy your very own piece of Christchurch music history. Right, Ari Freeman, he's the Deputy Wizard of Christchurch and unsurprisingly a practitioner of magic, most especially in the realm of music, where he's also known as the Blues Professor. He plays trumpet, bass, guitar, he sings, he teaches and he gigs and he paints and he writes and he even designs his own stage outfits. But how did Ari get to this point? And what or who influenced him along the way? This is the Garden of Sound interview with Ari Freeman on Plains FM 96.9. Ari, I want to kick off uh, with music in your life uh, as a young person. Do you remember it entering your life or do you remember the first time it, it made sense to you? Well, I remember a particular connection when I was five years old and it was um, hearing Bad by Michael Jackson on the radio. And my sister um, had a recording uh, cassette player. So she recorded that off the radio and she showed me how you could speed it up and slow it down. And I just found it hilarious. Not only did I really enjoy the song, but then my sister um, sort of played it at double dub speed and it became a chipmunk version of Bad. And I remember that being fascinating that sound could do that and recording equipment could do that. Correct me if I'm wrong, is Quincy Jones... Would he have had a yeah? I think I believe that was Quincy Jones. Yeah, and that. So, what particularly for the song sort of stuck out for you? What really attracted you? In retrospect, it was um, it would have been two things as a five year old. One, the infectious beat, which I didn't quite understand at the time. Um, Well, it'd be three things. Two, the the use of the word bad to mean good, and when you're a child just learning language, that was like wait wait a moment this. This guy's saying bad, but he means good. And having that explained and going, wait a moment, language can be used to obscure and not just <laughs> direct a clear message. It's a codified thing. He was, It was black slang, right? The other thing was Michael Jackson almost has a child's voice. So when you're a young boy, like it was something... I, I seem to be attracted at early age to, to when I had a high voice to singers like Freddie Mercury as well, who you could kind of sing along with. As a boy, and I'm not sure if other people have that experience either. But what about music around the home, apart from uh, Bad and the and the tape recorder? What about uh, yeah. Mum and Dad? Mum played the cello a little bit, and she was into classical music, and that came via my grandfather, who was a big lover of classical music. So I got that, and that definitely had some influence. 
She was mostly influenced me by um, getting me involved in music at a young age. She thought it very important for my education. So I started playing the trumpet at seven years old. Um, and that was mostly her efforts. And I joined this Christchurch School of Music and started my musical training there. My father loves um, Irish folk music. And I never had much to do with that until more recently. I've been playing double bass with Ian Costello um, in, a, in a group. And that Ian Costello is with the Black Velvet Band. He's one of the longest running musicians. Uh, that's one of the longest running bands in New Zealand. And I've started to understand folk as another um, type of music that gets people stamping and dancing and having a good time. And that's what I'm about. But the biggest influence would have been my brother, who um, was very into Pink Floyd, um, which I didn't pick up on entirely. How much older was he than you? Seven years older. Okay. And But he showed me Queen, and I started loving Queen at about age 10, maybe even younger. Um, and I'd listen to it a lot, especially Greatest Hits 1 and 2. And Top of it, your head, what's your favourite track off those two? Oh, I remember particularly liking One Vision. It's quite epic and epic and stampy, and it, it's got a big, powerful riff. And yeah. So let's go through to, to teenage years. You've, you've yeah. let the trumpet go, I imagine, by that point. No, I played... I, I play trumpet all the way through, uh, but it was a bit of a love-hate relationship because it's a very difficult instrument. It's quite a hard ask for a small child. And I got braces put on because my teeth were jiggity-jaggedy all over the place. painful against the lips, I imagine. Yeah, and so, but it changes your embouchure, which is a fancy word for um, the shape of your mouth and how you hold your lips when you play, which is the entirety of how you play the trumpet almost. So I got braces on, had to relearn how to play, lost all my high notes, had to retrain, got them taken off. Three years later, had to relearn how to play. It was just extremely frustrating. I was good enough that I got into jazz school on the trumpet, but I, I got I auditioned on bass and trumpet, and I and they said I could do either. Um, but I, I'd had such a frustrating journey with the trumpet that I went for the bass, also knowing that I'd probably get more work as a bass player, and I'd started to really love the bass, especially through um, learning Les Claypool licks from Primus and that sort of thing. And I, I'd le- I'd started to accelerate. I'd, I'd started to get good at bass much more quickly than I ever got good at the trumpets. So. so, what about um, original compositions? When did they? When did you start writing? Well, I remember fiddling around with it even when I was a kid. I remember writing songs on the way to school, but never quite knowing what to do with them and just trying to remember them and sort of forget them. And um, especially like things reminiscent of um, t- cartoon TV theme songs and that sort of thing. But I loved um, The Muppet Show and Sesame Street. And Se- Sesame Street has such fantastic music for children, better than any other children's program I've come across. Um, and lots of parodies of popular culture music at the time. When I was 14, I decided I wanted to get into rock music. I, I'd already got into jazz through the trumpet, and I knew that the basic lineup was guitar, bass, and drums, and I didn't um, know which instrument I was going to play. So we, one of my friends played guitar, one played, one was learning the drums, and uh, I was going to be a singer or something just as a leftover position, but we ended up not getting a bass player, so I picked up the bass. And I quickly learned that basses are capable of incredible number of techniques and things that almost no one hears. 
I, I didn't realize you could play chords on it until I picked it up. I didn't realize you could do tapping. I didn't realize it had these wonderful harmonics that ring out. You can play high notes on a bass if you wish. Um, and I'm like, this is great. Like, I could do this. This is something you. I guess I liked novelty. And, and so I spent a long time on um, bass. Can you think of any bassists who are fantastic but only play very simply? Absolutely. So of my simple bass players um, that I love are um, Tina Weymouth from Talking Heads. I love the way she takes two notes and three notes and turns them to, to the hook of the song. So the three note one would be um, Sucker Killer. Boom, 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 boom. And then there's um, the bass line for Once in a Lifetime. That's the bass line for the entire song. Okay. Yeah, and I like the, the two notes and she creates this hook. So I really like her. I like John Deacon from... Um, yeah, exactly. Same reason. From Queen. Um, yeah. And I love a bass player called Mark Sandman who plays a two-string slide bass in a band called Morphine. Morphine. And who's... Um, so he, he only plays with two strings. He plays with a slide. Um, I ended up building an instrument very similar to his. And yeah, it's just this wonderfully minimalist band that's a saxophone, a two-string slide bass player, and a drummer. And that had a big influence on me as a teenager. And I love his lyrics too. He's one of my favorite lyricists. I'm going to take a complete departure yeah. from music. I saw in some promo material uh, prior to the interview, mm. there's, there's the wizard's hat. So how did that come about and sort of what's is there a Christchurch role you play or is it yeah there is so I guess if I work backwards I've um been the right hand man to the Wizard of New Zealand who's a prominent figure here in Christchurch um we have an official wizard appointed by the Prime Minister in 1990 as as our as a Wizard of New Zealand before that as the Wizard of Christchurch before that, I got interested in magic, um, and I guess I always was. I'm kind of an, a skeptic, but I, um, I'm the type of skeptic who actually wants to try the thing out before I make up my mind. I came across um, a writer called Alan Moore who wrote a lot of comics. My brother was very into comic books, and we both actually produced some comics, at, um, him especially. But And when Alan Moore reached 40... He decided to come, he'd had an interest in the occult for a long time, and he decided to come out as a um, magician. And his argument was that all art is inherently magic. Now, if you go back to a uh, lady called Dion Fortune, she said um, magic is the ability to uh, manipulate perception in accordance with the will. So anytime that you're... Um, Controlling someone's perception, not necessarily in a bad way, it can absolutely be in a beneficial way, then you're producing magic. I'm going to stop you right there yeah. because it is time to play some music. Great. Now, uh, we did talk earlier, I'm going to switch things around, um, about favorite tracks. And you did talk about the Pointer Sisters. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a very specific track that uh, you do want to play. Do you want to tell me about it? Yeah, so all the um, music that I'm writing at the moment is grounded in funk and groove. And so I thought, what best to play but the tune that I think is the funkiest ever recorded, or at least the funkiest I've ever heard, and that is 
uh, the Pointer Sisters' Cheney Do off the album Step In. Thank <laughs> you. 
is the Garden of Sound interview with Ari Freeman on Plains FM 96.9. We just heard the Pointer Sisters. Uh, Huge departure from Jump, at least. (laughs) Um, Talking about uh, music and growing up, what's the first concert or the first big gig uh, that you you got along to? I think if I um, chose one that really uh, was life-changing, it was actually much later when I was 16. I was an exchange student in Germany, and I went to see Primus live in Dortmund, and this was 1998. And there were two bands. There was Primus and a band called Skeleton Key, and I'd never heard of Skeleton Key, but I liked them equally. Skeleton Key is a um, guitar-based drums group, but has a scrap metal percussionist in addition, who plays found metal objects like um, gas bottles and sheets of iron and... The, uh, so it's a little bit stompy in a yeah, way. Yeah, it's like a, one of the percussionists from the Stomp Show, almost, if he joined a rock band. And it was wonderfully quirky. Um, so that was incredible to watch. And I, I immediately, when I got home to New Zealand, I started a, a band with a scrap metal percussionist because we didn't have anything like it here. And But Primus blew me away. Primus was kind of in a, a bit of a snooty mood that night. And someone threw a... a something on stage at can or something and immediately um the band stopped like immediately i didn't i now i when i go and see a concert that i really like if i'm having quite a good time i will dance if i really want to see the band i will go right to the front and stay completely still and just try and learn as much as possible and i was doing that and i was watching les claypool the leader he's a bass player and singer like a hawk and I didn't see a single signal he gave the band, and yet the band stopped. Um, and he 
He made an extremely rude <laughs> comment about how not, if people were going to throw things on stage, he'd come down and shove the thing up their orifice and that sort of stuff. And then they started playing again. And again, I didn't see the signal at all. It was like watching a band, just someone press the stop button and then someone press the start button, three piece. And I was like, whoa. So the other thing I did when I came home and started a band is I said, we're not going to count in. And other musicians were like, what? So I'm just going to jump in the air and you'll start when I, when I land. And we discovered that's, inc- that's absolutely possible. So, um, yeah, that band never counted in. Well, it very much is at the end of a song as well. It's that... Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. you're waiting for that for that moment. Exactly. So we started that way. It was but quite to, fun. But to start without any... There, there was no yeah. leap, did you see? There must have been some kind of, like, a cue that you, you didn't pick up on, like a little head there tilt would have or been something. There would have been something, something but foot tap I didn't or whatever. see it. So that a band could be that responsive was fascinating to me. So it's something I've tried to create. So ever since I have um, somewhat conducted in the bands I've been in too, because I love that aspect of it being in a moment, even though it was even though it was in order that Les Claypool could tell off the audience, it was incredible to me that the band could have that amazingly spontaneous thing that he had the power to start and stop the band at any given time and that it was perfect. I was like, how is that possible? Uh Aside from the scrap metal percussionist, mm. or perhaps the um, the extremely quick intros, anything mm. else that you sort of picked up uh, from from bands across the years, which you've sort of introduced to your show? I mean, it could even be a work ethic or, or something. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a few things. I'm I'm strange in that I started out in a very experimental way, and um, and gradually and gradually tried figured out how to play music that people actually liked. <laughs> So I kind of work backwards. I think a lot of other people um, start with the easy stuff, the covers and that sort of stuff, and then move towards expressing themselves later. But I really worked backwards. And it meant I was somewhat of a late bloomer, but um, I, think it's, I think it's a good way to go. I really think if you're learning an instrument, and I teach guitar, but if you're learning an instrument, start writing immediately, even if you only know two notes. If if you learn and if you learn a song you like, try and write a song that's like that song, even if you don't show the world. It's um, it's just such a wonderfully expressive medium, and there's stuff you're never going to learn unless you um, try and create it yourself. So where is that line? You said writing music or playing for yourself, and then trying to get the crowd to have a good time. Where is that line between? Yeah, well, it's not one or the other, so don't look at it as a binary. You've got to find the place where you meet both, where you're expressing yourself, you're having a good time, and the audience is having a good time. It's not a not a game of winner and loser. It's a game of winner and winner. Something I tell my students is, um, look, you've got a choice. You can please a huge number of people a little bit for a short time, and that's your kind of that's your cover span that plays top 40 type or the typical cover band stuff and that's good like I'm, I'm not putting that down at all there's got to be a wide appeal group um but all those people are go they'll get this song played they'll go away they'll probably forget about the band in two days or you can please just a couple of people a lot you'll really make their year so like if you want to play um extreme black metal with a sousaphone like 
there's a couple of people that are gonna go yes finally something different this is amazing yes and like like half the audience is gonna go i don't get this and like there'll just be a couple of people go yes and they'll be your you'll win them over forever they'll be your friends forever after after that so what you were saying is you're trying to find that midpoint between pleasing everyone for a short period of time and a small group for a long period of time yeah i guess so i guess i am but choose your choose your point of attack i guess one's not better than the other necessarily but i like to try and do something new and but i also like it when um i can get a number of people to dance we've covered a lot of ground already from michael jackson through the pointer sisters mm. and um uh, les and co with primus yeah um uh, is there any band that we sort of consider an influence maybe not for now but maybe in, yeah. the, in the past so especially my band rhomboid um a big influence would be a band called failure and uh, Bank of Fa- the Failure is a band that I got into when I was um, about 16. And they came in sort of just after grunge had become passe or just on the edge of it. And they're like grunge musicians playing who have master's degrees in music. They, it's highly um, intellectual. The thing I love about it is their incredible propensity to ride tension. So... Uh, most people have heard of the concept of tension and release because it's it's there in all um, temporal art, all art that goes a long time. So movie and f- uh, films and TV programs and music that you want to ride to some tension because they're all narrative themes and there's no such thing as a story where nothing goes wrong. Something has to go wrong and then come right again and go wrong and then come right again. So... Failure has this amazing ability, almost like classical musicians, to push the tension in more and more and more and more and more and more and then still manage to resolve it, but resolve it in unique ways. And the thing they're doing is using quite complex chords, um, but moving them around as like the grunge musicians were. Is the emotion still there? Oh, yeah, but it's this really frantic, of course, the emotion's there. What well, tension is excitement. There's no excitement without tension. So you need to have tension in your music to have emotion. What's the track you want to play? I want to play Moth by Failure off their second album, Magnified. i uh-huh. 
Thanks for being with us today. I'm exceptionally thankful to Mint Finance for sponsoring Garden of Sound. You know, they're great at making things happen, especially in the area of equipment finance. Perhaps you might need a new van for getting your band off to gigs. Perhaps you're building a studio. You need to invest in some top quality gear. Well, Mint can offer equipment finance for up to 100% of the purchase price. That's fully secured against the new asset on terms of up to five years, which means you can concentrate on the business of making music or building your musical empire. Terms and conditions apply, obviously. Why don't you give Mint Finance a call today? on 0800 666 That's 0800 666 You can visit them online at mintfinance.co.nz. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Ari Freeman on Plains FM 96.9. Ari, we just heard from... Um, from failure, which was was brilliant. Uh, there's you. obviously a lot of um, a lot of music uh, out there now. It's not just Romboy that you're involved with. There's another couple of groups. Yeah, so uh, there's a band that I play in. It's a one man band. It's called Blues Professor, and I also have this love of old fifties um, fifties music and earlier. And it's a very funky, groovy um, guitar based thing where I play drums with my feet. And I play guitar in a style I call juggling, whereby I throw in a bit of a bass line, some chords and some lead work. I never quite tell you when I'm going to do which, when, and you end up hearing it all at once. And what is the other um, RE project? The other RE project is the most recent one. It's called Falls No More. That's no with a K. And it's what I would term soul rock. So it explores the more, um, I guess, emotional side of my lyric writing and yeah i sing in a slightly different way yes um any artists that you sort of could draw upon to give an idea of the the sound developing as it goes but one thing that really inspired me is a um, new band called crowing bin it's a thai word meaning airplane um and it's just this um, beautiful groove based um like mellow funk music really that's inspired by world music and so I sort of started at thinking I'd do something like that, and as it got it, my music ended up getting a lot heavier than that, but that's all right. Um, so, yeah, inspired. Um, definitely inspired by Betty Davis, um, Miles Davis's second wife, who was a funk musician who released four, um, three albums in the 70s and then had one um, reissued later on that never got released. Amazing musician. You were talking about Chili Peppers being an influence, but... It's really more, um, they are, but it's really more Betty Davis. Um, she she inspired the Chili Peppers quite a lot, I heard. It's really guitar-based um, funk, but it also includes the clavinet, which we talked about earlier. Has there ever been any Jane's Addiction interest? Yeah, I like all that stuff. Um, Jane's Addiction, um, Soundgarden, a big love of mine, especially um, Chris Cornell as a vocalist. Um, what other bands? Yeah, Nirvana really early on. I sort of got into Nirvana, really, really enjoyed them, moved away from them, and then came back to them when I really realised what was special about them. And to me, what's special about them is the melodies. And Nirvana has really unique melodies that are actually quite jazz-orientated in the, their use of really unusual um, um, harmony notes. Do you know much of Cobain's musical upbringing? Or? Well, he had no training as far as so I where, can tell. That's what I wonder. Had where a, does that come from? Had a bizarre ability 
for intuitive ear from music to hear harmonies that no one else in his peer group was hearing. And his guitar playing is very, is deliberately simple. He wasn't a bad guitar player, he, um, but he deliberately kept his guitar playing simple, partly because I think he suffered from extreme nerves. So he was playing stuff that he could actually pull off live when he, you know, and the, but the way he sang, the, he's not, a, again, not a trained singer, but he'll sing sharp 11s, he'll sing nights, he'll sing these upper jazz harmonies in his chords. And the, the thing I found when I was a kid is that other bands would try and emulate Nirvana and they'd understand the guitar riffing and the, they'd just sing one note or two notes for the melody and it would it wouldn't sound right. And the reason was is because the melodies were actually quite sophisticated. But theory-wise, he probably wasn't consciously singing, no. I'm going to sing a flat five or I'm a sharp 11 or whatever. It was just, you know, what... He consciously knew, I'm trying to do something different. He consciously, uh, um, he intuitively knew he was looking for attention the way we talked about in that failure track that he wasn't going to get from the just um, a major triad type simple harmony, a major third. He was looking for more attention. Because you can tell in the way he plays guitar. Because some of his guitar playing is super structured, like smells like Teen Spirit solo, and some of it is completely random like the solo for in bloom where it's almost got accidental improvised things but he's always going for out what i call out sounds things that aren't quite in key that then maybe resolve back into the key and this is i think what i really love this is the same thing i liked about failure failure did on purpose i think kurt cobain did it entirely intuitively on purpose but intuitively i don't think he would have been able to explain in any music theory way what he was I can doing but completely yeah. appreciate what you're yeah what you're saying um i want to talk about your 2016 release yeah uh, this is the the rhomboid album how much of it was pure arithmetic and working out i need to include these kind of things or how much of it was i feel this way about this particular kind of thing i want to get this message out it can absolutely go either way i can absolutely write a song that comes out from a sound in my head and then I have to interpret it on an instrument but I can also sit down with a piece of paper and do two pages of <laughs> writing down note names to try and solve a problem almost like maths and a lot of people would assume one way would work better than the other in my experience some of my favorite stuff has worked um, both ways so a lot of people think a song has to be intuitive. It has to start from a heartfelt place. And it Not, has to be three minutes 15 long. Yeah. No, the yeah. emotion can get in there anyway. It's all trickery. This is the thing people don't understand. It's all a trick. Mm -hmm. And it's like um, you're, when you're playing... So what is real on the record? Is there anything that's real? The dents in the, that are pressed into the CD are real. And the sound waves are real. They can be measured, but the music is music is not sound. Music is an experience, uh, experience in a human mind, and I guess animals can can be affected by it somewhat too. But when you play guitar, you've got a tool producing sound waves in order to play someone's mind, and I realise this because the things that people hear are not what's going on. People do not hear exactly what's going on. And you know this if you try and learn a piece of music, it's frequently quite different than you expected when you do learn it. If you're trying to play it on an instrument or sing it, you go, oh, I didn't hear that, oh, I didn't hear that, oh, I didn't hear that. One other audience is hearing that. Now you might go, well, then why try very hard to make it complicated or anything? Well, if you walk into a cathedral, 
you know immediately that it's full of detail and it might take two days to see everything in the cathedral or maybe two weeks. So the feeling of complexity is like we listen to in the Pointer Sisters track or the Failure track is there. It, that's immediate. It's it's sort of a mystery. It's like, oh, it's complex and, and this is going to take a while to figure out. Well, that, that happens immediately, even if you can't figure out every detail right there and then. So music does this all the time. A lot of music is confusion, right? So I guess being a composer is the art of tricking people in the right way in order that they feel the right stuff. Going back to the album, take me through the production process because there's a there's a heap going on there. Or actually, tell me about the um, the band members in Rhomboid. Okay, so the album um, features a different drummer, Oscar Green. So it's Oscar and um, Fud, Mike Fedorkowski, and I. And I wrote the songs, though they um, they added their you know they embellished their parts. And basically, I recorded it at home. I have a home studio. And that particular album was just ridiculously many hours of work <laughs> trying to shape this thing into the best I could do at the time. The drums are quite simple on the album. Yeah. The sound of them or even just just generally. I imagine they would be in the style of music. Yeah. They would be a heck of a lot more complex. Well, we're always looking for that um, groove factor. There's elements of it which are a prog band and there's elements of which are dan- dancey. But it's certainly not, um, we're not trying to be as difficult and complicated as possible. We're trying to move the um, listener to a particular headspace. And there's a lot of humour in there as well. I'm not going to go into great detail on um, your guitar, which you've brought with you yeah. today. And we may get to uh, see see a little bit of it uh, later on, on mm. online. Um, you've done an absolutely fantastic uh, interview with um, uh, you. young musician um, uh, Dylan Jonkers out of the band. Oh, that's right, yeah. Class disruption. We're sort of taking you through your 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 pedal board and, uh, and right, so yeah. on. Um, I think it's time to uh, to hear it in action off the off the album. Is there a specific track from uh, Romboid uh, that you would like to uh, like to play now? Yeah, um, Gigantopithecus would probably be a good start. It's nice and succinct, catchy. It's about the. Uh, and it's a really simple name as well. To yeah, <laughs> Gigantopithecus was a ten foot tall ape that lived a hundred thousand years ago that um, I'm comparing to Bigfoot. Um, And I think a lot of people look around the world and look at something like Bigfoot and just immediately decide it's preposterous because an ape couldn't get that large. Well, it turns out there was once an ape on Earth that was that size. And the the song asks the question, where does um, archaeology and uh, legend combine?
This is the Garden of Sound interview with Ari Freeman on Plains FM 96.9. I want to talk about um, best musical memory because obviously life is about, you know, ranking things Mm. like clickbaity articles on the the internet. Is there anything that's particularly uh, stuck out for you for all the music you've done across the years that you went, okay, that was a a Mm. good thing? Like one thing you get leading a creative career is you've always got to be pushing along because you're under your own motivation. I don't have a boss. I don't have anyone to answer to. And So upon, how do you keep yourself motivated? I always have to look for the new. I have to always be most excited in the new thing I'm doing. I'm recording a whole bunch of new songs with my band False No More at the moment, and I've got a couple of gigs coming up. So I'm, it's always that that I'm finding most exciting at any given time. Is it the blues professor that's that's paying the bills? Teaching and blues professor, and um, occasionally I produce new blues professor stuff. At the moment, I'm focused on Force No More, and also um, Rhomboid's done almost become a little scene to itself, especially doing these theme shows. But I really want to interact with other bands a bit, and um, because there's this incredible scene going on in Christchurch, and not a lot of glue holding it together. What kind of glue does it need? We need a gig guide that actually has everything going on the city on it instead of three or four, in my opinion. We could badly use um, some journalists to come and take a look at what's happening here because there's some fantastic bands here and um, and let people know. 
and we could really use um, help with promotion because there's such great talent here to help some, get some bands. We could really trade, do some musical trade, more musical trades with Dunedin, more musical trades with Wellington and Auckland and this sort of thing. We, it feels like everything's kind of insular. And I've lived in the North Island and they don't pay much attention to Christchurch and they really should for a bunch of reasons. The um, political climate here is fascinating post-earthquake. <laughs> the music scene here is really interesting. The community here is really interesting. And for better and for worse, we've had horrible tragedies. Um, we've had amazing comebacks, the way things are sprung back together. So it's really one of the pivotal points in New Zealand where exciting, dark and amazingly bright things are happening and yet it's always just Christchurch down there. Tell me about uh, short-term gigs for Ari and um, yeah. long-term projects. So keep an eye out for um, False No More. All this stuff's on Facebook. I'm, I intend to um, try and gig about once a month with that band. Um, Rhomboid uh, has a show on the 22nd Which at Dark Room. tomorrow night. Yeah. So come along to that. And uh, we're going to play all our original material in that. And then we also have a Beatles theme show where we remake Beatles material on August the 10th. And we basically funkify everything. Nothing's played straight. We're going to include a um, saxophone section in that as well. Anything that you really want to try that you haven't haven't done before? Any? Yeah, um, I'd love to um, do some supports for international acts. What sort of genres would you think want to pick you up? Well, um, I'm definitely got the blues thing happening, funk thing happening, the alternative rock thing happening. Anything in the classical domain that? Well, I have a love for it. I really love um, things like Gabriel Fauré. Um, I really love Sasson. The, um, I'm not a classical musician anymore. It's, it was my starting point back when I was a kid, but got into jazz from about 10. Well, we're almost at the end of the show. Mm. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating and exciting you. Um, having you on, um, on Garden of Sound. I would really dig you uh, playing something uh, live. So have you got a track that you'd be, um, you'd be keen on playing? Cool. This is called Howling at the Moon. It's a werewolf blues that I've written. Don't be alone. 
That's all for today. My guest was Ari Freeman as part of Romboid, Fools No More, and also performs as the Blues Professor. You can find out all about where Ari's playing by visiting the Garden of Sound website. That's gardenofsound.nz and clicking on his picture on the front page. From there, you can find out more about Ari's gig with Romboid tomorrow night at the Darkroom. Next week on the show, two for the price of one. We're going to journey back to May and chat with both Olivia Eady and Tane Anaka from Twin Harmony about how they got started in music and their experiences at Garden of Sound Live. This has been Garden of Sound presented by Mint Finance, business loans made easy. Until next week, keep well, keep listening and keep playing. Hey there, Dark.